Welcome back to another episode of the Worthy for 30 podcast. Uh, I'm excited to introduce my next guest, uh, someone whose newsletter may uh, make an appearance in your inbox on every Sunday or more than every Sunday. Welcome to the show, Paulina Pompliano. Excited to have you here. Looking forward to digging in into you know, your path. Uh, what's interesting uh, is about two years or so, uh, I was on a community of seven uh, roundtable with Lan Fan, who, who invited me, and you were the uh, the guest host, and you were talking about how you left Fortune Mag, you know, to really lean into the profile. I think this was perhaps at the, you know, I don't know if it was twenty twenty or twenty twenty one, but again, it was in the in the thick of the uh, the pandemic, and you know, people were trying to understand heads or tails on what's going to happen. Uh, what is going to be, what's going to happen in terms of business? Are we going to go back to normal or is this going to be this new normal where it's going to be this hybrid or remote working uh, structure? Uh, and then there are also the the folks who, who left their full-time jobs to pursue entrepreneurship and you're one of those. So again, welcome to the show, Paulina. Really uh, excited to have you here. Uh, I think that, you know, the, the first, um, you know, the question that I love, not question, but just to get an understanding of your evolution and how you decided to you know, start or found the profile, which was you know, around 2017, three years into doing this full time. I know you went to college for journalism. So just again, love for you to give both myself as well as the listeners just an understanding of your evolution to where you are today. Thank you so much, Erica. I'm, I'm really excited to be on your podcast. And I remember that Community of Seven panel very well. I think that was in 2020 if I'm not mistaken, or 2021. Yeah, but a lot has happened since then. So basically, very quickly, my objective path to where I got here is I graduated from college in 2013 with a journalism degree. Then I spent a year freelancing for CNN and USA Today. Then I moved to New York uh, and spent six months at a media startup. And then after that, I went to work in October of 2014 at Fortune Magazine for five years and then, or six years, I guess. And then I left in 2020 of March to work on the profile, my newsletter full-time. Mm -hmm. And and the profile, I'm, again, I'm a huge fan. I always look forward to, uh, you know, every Sunday, you know, getting my curated, like here are the articles that you should be reading. Here is an interesting profile that you put together. Can you get, uh, give us an understanding of the profile? And what it is? Yeah. So the profile is, it started as just a newsletter that I did on the side while I was working at Fortune, but it was my own thing. So I started writing it in February of 2017. It was just to family and friends. I was like, you know, here seven to eight. Uh, profile that I personally found really interesting. And let's talk about them. Let's have a conversation. Kind of almost started it because I loved profiles and two, because it would act as a conversation starter. And then in, as it started, you know, growing and evolving in 2020, I wanted to grow it, but I couldn't because I was still working at a traditional media publication and there's certain rules around like what you can do outside of it. So I wanted to do interviews. I wanted to write original articles. I didn't just want to curate profiles, but in order to do that, I would have to work on it full time. So that's kind of when I started toying with the idea, like what would the profile look like if I dedicated 100% of my time to it instead of just doing it on the side? Mm -hmm. 
Gotcha. And one of the uh, things I found very interesting, you know, when you were talking, when you were on that community of seven panel is tying your identity to your name. You know, when you have Oprah, you know, Oprah, someone can't take Oprah away from Oprah, you know, she's built that identity. So I'd love for you to speak to that, that, that power of, again, tying your name to uh, what, what you pursue in life. Yeah. So basically when somebody asks you, so what do you do at like a party or an event? Most people answer with their most impressive identity, oftentimes being their job title. So a lot of times for me, I would respond with, you know, I'm a writer and editor at Fortune Magazine. And that I think like it signified a certain status, a certain whatever. And a lot of people end up tying their identity to their job. The problem with that is that it's something external that can be away from you. And whether it's a job, a relationship, like, you know, some sort of achievement that you do not control yourself, that means as long as it's external, it can always be taken away from you. So I've always thought about this idea of like, what can you do solely for yourself that nobody can take away from you? For me, that's the profile. It's something I created that I, you know, poured my vision into, et cetera, that I cannot be fired from. If it fails, it's my doing. So when I think about somebody like Oprah, for example, she has built an identity around her name, not around the Oprah Winfrey show, not around uh, her cable network, not around anything specific. So when she goes to a party, nobody's like, so what do you do? They already know. <laughs> right. They're like, uh, we know what you do. Um, and we know and we know what you're doing is is pretty amazing. And especially with the profile, right? You're curating, you know, these these profiles of remarkable uh, industry leaders and not just in business, right? You know, this is spanning different categories. And then you've, then you've also delved into original content of, you know, uh, I want to uh, write a profile around XYZ business person because that person has a remarkable story. What is the common denominator, do you believe, or if you could put your finger on it, between the people that you curate, again, their stories, as well as that original content uh, and profiles that you put together? I definitely think that one of the pieces is they are people who have either gotten burned by something external, therefore they've been forced to tie their identity around something they control, or they're people who are constantly like seeking ways to bet on themselves and take risks that lead to growth and learning. I think a lot of people ask me, like, why did you... I, I also takes a lot of the learnings I've had with the profile and puts them in a comprehensive like book. But when people ask me like, why hidden genius? And I'm like, because the people that I choose to include in the book and also feature in the profile are not people who are, who you traditionally think of as genius. They're people who have a certain view of the world or a certain like framework in the way that they solve problems, that that's what makes them unique and uniquely uh, prepared to solve certain problems. And that is why they each have a hidden genius, like many of us. Like I think all of us have some sort of hidden genius. It's just a lot of us haven't discovered it yet. 
Right. So, so in a hidden genius, your book that's coming out in June, um, it's it's around again the, these mental models that the, these people, these these leaders, uh, or these what we believe to be remarkable people. But what you're able to do is pull back the layer of their their humanity, and hey, they're not that much different from you and I. You know, it's just you know to your point, they're able to unlock something that was again hidden. Uh, again, that that mental model to allow them to overcome or exceed what they thought was possible. Right. So uh, is, is there someone or people that you can point to that, you know, that fit that mold that you would say, hey, when you get off this, when you when you stop listening to this podcast conversation, go seek out the, those stories or those profiles? Yeah. So there's a chapter on mental toughness and mental resilience. And what I found most remarkable is that a lot of the people that I feature in the book are regular people right? Like it's not some polymath or some, you know, genius that they, they're just sharing their, uh, with the world. It's regular people who discovered something and then they used it to their advantage that I think others can learn from. So for example, in the mental toughness chapter, I talk about David Goggins, who a lot of people maybe know, for those who don't know, he's, uh, an ultra athlete. He's been called the toughest man in the world. Um, he does crazy physical feats, and he runs very long distances and he leads kind of like a like a militant lifestyle in terms of discipline and how he organizes his day. But he talks about how there's this like dark room he enters. He's like, I go in as a weak kid. He, when he was younger, he used to be bullied. He went through a lot of challenges and he sees himself as like David Goggins, he says, was a weak kid. But then Goggins, this alter ego that he built, like this is, I built him. Like he is strong, he is fearless, etc. But he talks about going into this dark room. And in this dark room, mentally, he kind of visualizes like this weak kid going in and facing all of the things that he doesn't like about himself. So he'll be like, you're a liar, you're lazy, all of these things, and it may sound harsh, but it's actually like being brutally honest with yourself and then asking, how can I change that? And then he is able to leave that dark room, a changed man, and become a form. Somebody else who does something similar is Courtney Dahlwalter. She is also an entrepreneur and she personifies pain in that she visualizes when she's running these like 100 mile races. She visualizes herself going into the pain cave, which means that when she starts experiencing pain, she's like, oh, yeah, this is just me entering this because by visualizing it that way, she's in control of when she enters and she's just as in control of when she leaves. So she doesn't have to stay in there all the time. Like there's a difference between experiencing pain and feeling suffering for a long period of time. So she just sees it as something, oh, going into the pain cave, this is going to be awful, but I'm going to leave eventually. So she knows it's only temporary. And then the third person that I talk about is Anthony Ray Hinton, who he has a totally different story. He was wrongfully imprisoned and he was on death row for 30 years. Um, he saw, I think, 50 men go past the cell uh, and be executed. And he, while in this like tiny prison cell, he said he used his mind to visualize other better realities. Because what do you do when you're in like solitary confinement by yourself all day? There's nothing to do. So he basically used his mind to 
win Wimbledon or have tea with the queen, like marry Halle Berry, like all these things. And that's a level of mental resilience that most people, I mean, most of us would go insane, right? Like if we were in solitary confinement, if we were on death row, knowing we were going to die at some point, your, your brain just breaks, but he was able to stay sane for 30 years. So all these people, what I learned and that they all realize and they have in common is that they know, visualize pain and suffering as this like external thing that they have control over that basically when you go into this place, the dark room, the pain cave or the, the, the cell, the solitary confinement cell, if you don't break in there, you will eventually transform into this much stronger, much better self. So I think like a lot of us can learn from that and be like, okay, in what scenarios can I visualize a place of metamorphosis where I'm experiencing pain or undergoing extreme challenges? How can I go into that, learn lessons and come out the other side, you know, a better person and having grown from that experience? Right. And, and, you know, using David Goggins, because he's someone that I follow on social media, you know, he's definitely, um, yeah, he's able to create that persona because he was uh, a Navy SEAL, an Army Ranger. He's one of the few that's done it. Um, and he's run these ultra marathons or these marathons consecutively. Uh, and again, he, he's able to uh, again create that persona of David of the past, of David of now. Uh, what's really interesting, you talk about mental resilience and, you know, you, you look at the news and on Twitter, it's, uh, economic upheaval, it's social, socioeconomic upheaval. Uh, one example is the Silicon Valley Bank uh, run and, oh gosh, you know, is this a 2008 all over again? So it really calls into question, especially for the person who's starting out, whether they're a creator, whether they're an entrepreneur on, oh my goodness, you know, the, the sky is falling. So what's your, what's your advice um, or what's your, your perspective in terms of, again, tapping into that, that mental resilience and seeing everything that's going around us in terms of just charting the path forward. Yeah. I think is the key is to maintain emotional sobriety in the face of complete chaos. The same chapter on mental resilience, like I talk about like how do you grapple with uncertainty? And there's so much uncertainty in our, you know, daily lives. When I, like you mentioned earlier, when I was leaving my job at Fortune to do the profile full time, on my list of possible risks there was you know you know financial recessions happen in 10 year cycles could there be a financial downturn when right when i leave what i wasn't thinking about is a global pandemic <laughs> that is a risk nobody foresaw and it was such a like just out of left field but i think the point is there's i mean life is full of that like you're going to be blindsided so many times maybe it's not by something global but maybe it's on a smaller scale within your family or something like that that really um like is very jarring to you so the best lesson about this that i learned um is from uh, chris hadfield who's an astronaut and he oftentimes talks about fear in terms of you have to, I think he calls it a dress rehearsal for catastrophe. So the point is you, you have to go through every scenario you can possibly imagine that could go wrong. Of course, there will be some that you do not see, but if you feel competent, then that competence breeds confidence in those really terrifying moments in life. So one of his examples is he talks about how like when you're 
little and you run, learn to ride a bike, you keep falling off the bike, you scrape your knee, all this stuff. So maybe you label the bike as really dangerous. But then over time, as you learn how to ride it, you get better. So he's like, it's not that the bike changed. The bike is just as dangerous as it always was. It's that you have changed, right? So you are no longer feeling like it's dangerous because you're more competent. And he's a fascinating guy, but he once got, he was outside of the International Space System, a station system, <laughs> International Space Station. And he was um, working on it. And all of a sudden, he got something in his eye and it was like a drop of oil with whatever they, um, whatever they cleaned their helmets with, but it was inside of the helmet. Obviously he's in space. He can't take his helmet off, but suddenly he went blind. So now he's like blind outside of the ISS and he's just like, what do I do? But it wasn't his, you know, he wasn't flooded with emotions because he had that Rest rehearsal for catastrophe. He was like, I could call for help. Like my the other astronaut can come help me and do a rescue. I could cry a little bit and try to get like the stuff out of my eye. All this stuff he could do. He had a list of risk mitigation strategies. And I think like that's the point. He probably never thought, what happens if I'm outside of the ISS blind? Like that, that probably wasn't a thing. But because he had prepared for so many different scenarios, it wasn't an automatic response from his emotional system. It was more of a logical response. And I think like this is what we're seeing right now. A lot of people who have never been through some sort of bank run or some sort of like chaos like this before, they're learning a very valuable lesson of like what systems can we put into place that we never get caught flat footed again. Maybe it's diversification of your funds using different banks. Maybe, you know, like you, you can, there's a number of things you can put into place, but you had never thought about it just because you had never seen this before. And, and all of the entrepreneurs who are rising now have kind of built their businesses in a bull market. So it's like, okay, this is kind of the first hurdle that will inform all your future decisions. But, but I do think like, it's like, be prepared for a lot of different scenarios so that if you get blindsided by one, you still kind of have a mental checklist of what you could do to overcome it. Gotcha. And and, it, and there are two things that have come out of out of that, that comment that you made is is consistent consistency and finding creative inspiration. So consistency, I know, is a big thing for you in terms of consistency leads to trust. Like when was the last time someone was inc inconsistent and you trusted them? I, and, I, and I saw that from a, from a previous interview of yours, uh, which is super interesting. You know, so for that entrepreneur who's or the creator who's just starting, how would you define consistency to them? Yeah, consistency is basically a promise that you make to yourself and your reader, customer, user, your publicly that you uphold over a long period of time. So to me, consistency is like my promise was I will publish or this newsletter will land in your inbox every single Sunday morning. And it doesn't matter if you signed up last year or yesterday, I will continue to build on that promise. And I, I really do believe that that is the biggest reason that people were willing to support the football financially in 2020 because I had been doing it for three whole years every single Sunday without breaking that trust with the reader. Even one week, they'd be like, oh, well, there, there will have been someone who signed up that Friday. And then if they didn't get it on Sunday, they'll be like, what the hell? And then they would get it the following Sunday and then be like, oh, I forgot what this was. Like, did I sign up for this? So you risk kind of A, losing people, but B, losing the trust you have with your existing readers. So 
like you said, like I've put systems into place that even if the unthinkable happens, I have ways in which the profile will get sent on Sunday. Even I, if I myself have something else going on. Gotcha. Okay. Excellent. And then, you know, again, the, the, the creative inspiration. So, you know, even Malcolm Gladwell, James Clear, you know, people, Atomic Habits, uh, you know, is, is in one of my top books. Um, but again, it goes back to that extraordinary ordinary, you know, in the sense that they're able to unlock mental models. I think Gladwell, you know, based on a previous conversation that you had, you know, Gladwell is like, you know, try to break out to where that place is where you get that creative inspiration, like go to a library, right? Or go to a place that you don't necessarily see or, or are, you know, to get that creative inspiration. So again, similar question, you know, looking at, you know, some of these you know, past guests like Clear and Gladwell, how, what, what would your, your suggestion be to that, again, that person who's starting, uh, whether again, start starting their, their new venture, starting, you know, a blog or a podcast, you know, with regards to finding that creative inspiration and building on that, like, where do you seek creative inspiration when, again, when you're hitting that, that wall? Okay. So I kind of have like a weird answer to this because I, I don't believe <laughs> that like inspiration is this muse, this like outside thing that you just have to wait for to happen to you. I've built inspiration into my daily life. So I'm never at a shortage for ideas because literally I get ideas from talking to people, from texting with friends, from watching a movie. Like it's kind of, I'm always looking for that. And if you build it into your life, you'll never be at a loss of like, oh, do I, where's my next idea going to come from? And I also have like a tiny little notebook that I carry in my bag. So if I overhear something, I'll jot it down really quick to, as a reminder for the future um, of what to write about. I recently did uh, a dossier, which is these like, it's a deep dive into an, an individual person that I send every Wednesday. But this Judy Bloom, she's a children's author. And they asked her, like, how do you come up with these storylines and these characters and this dialogue? And she says that literally every single one of her books has been inspired from a real life conversation that she either overheard at a coffee shop or she had with a friend or something or a child asked her a certain question. So it's like if you can find ways to um, to get inspiration in your daily life, that's the way to do it. And one more thing, James Clear told me that the way he, he, he always told, he told me that, um, whenever his writing suffers, it's because he hasn't been reading enough for him. I think a lot of ideas come from books and certain things that he'll read. He'll be like, Whoa, that was interesting. So the way he's incorporated into his regular life is he has a bunch of books everywhere. He has a stack of books in the kitchen, a stack of books in the living room, anywhere that he might just be like, what am I doing right now? Let me pick up a book and start reading and maybe I'll get an idea that way. No, it's, it's like super interesting because like because I just remember from Atomic Habits, like if you're looking to lose weight, like move the thing that you that, that tempts you like as far away as possible because you're going to find yourself like, oh, do I need to go all the way downstairs into the basement to find that cookie or whatever that, that delicacy is that I want. Whereas, you know, if, and so that's a bad habit, but replacing a good habit, like again, putting books in front of you, you're just making it super easy for you to just like, okay, uh, I, uh, here are the books that I should be reading to, again, to find, hopefully find that, that, that nugget of inspiration, which is, which is interesting. Cause you know, you talk about your, the dossier, again, the deep dives at the profile that you send out on a weekly basis on, on one particular person. Uh, and one of the dossiers that I came across, and I, I sent you notes before our conversation, is Danny Meyer, the, the founder of Union Square Hospitality. 
And one of the one of the quotes that he he mentioned, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna quote it verbatim, was there's no no such thing as real innovation. It's just connecting the dots. And I thought to myself, you know what, I, you know, in, in terms of this like common denominator, I'm having these these conversations with folks like yourself, Polina, where it's like, okay, what what is that common denominator? And it's these these folks who uh, are able to look backwards and and identify the dots that they're able to connect to, to get them to where they are today. So thinking about, again, connecting those dots, you know, uh, and where you are today, like, were there specific, you know, again, going back, whether it's creative inspiration or not, but are you able to pinpoint those dots in your past that have gotten gotten you to where you are today with the profile? A hundred percent. And I think, yeah, it is so funny because looking back, it's like, well, of course you were one day going to start the profile. Like it looks so obvious, but it wasn't to me at the time. And I think actually leaving, well, two things. First, I remember being in college and I was working at the college paper in one of the University of Georgia alumni was Brandon Stanton, who started Humans of New York. And he reached out to the college paper for us to do a story on him. He was like, I have 10,000 Facebook followers. Now he has millions. But at the time, like that was a lot. And I remember checking it out for the first time. And I looked at the Humans of New York page and I was like, damn, like, that's such a great idea. Like, I, I honestly felt like jealous. I was like, how amazing that he gets to go photograph people and talk to them and just you know, have interesting conversations with them and then, you know, uh, write a quote down because that's initially how it started. And I always believe that like the people in the things that you envy and like follow that jealousy, like why, why do you envy them? Like, what is it about whatever they're doing that, you know, makes you feel like, oh, I wish I was doing that. And so that was the first time I was like, man, like I, I would really enjoy that, but I didn't pay attention to it just went on with my life. And then after I graduated from college, to me, I still define success as this very like traditional thing, like money, status, achievement, that, that's what it was. And to me, success was I'll graduate from college with a full-time job at a prestigious like news organization. None of that happened. And I think that that for me was the biggest lesson in that I had to move back home. I had to live with my mom. I had to like sit on the couch every day and be like, okay, well, what am I going to do today? Because <laughs> I suddenly have no job, no identity, no anything. I'm just me. So it forced me. To, that was the first time it's forced me to bet on myself. And I started reaching out to people being like, do you need help? You know, I reached out to my former uh, boss when I was an intern at CNN. And I was like, the holidays are coming up. I'll do anything. Like, do you need help? They were like, sure. Yeah. Like a lot of people are taking time off. You can come freelance and do certain things. So that's how I was able to like make money. But it, for the first time, I learned what it meant to be in charge of your own schedule, to have discipline, to get up in the morning. And, you know, even though your uh, schedule is flexible every single day to be like, from this time to this time I'm working, then I'm going to work out, then I'm going to do this. And it's just like, that takes a lot of in intrinsic motivation that I think a lot of new graduates struggle with. But if that hadn't happened, I don't think I would ever even know what it meant to have your own business or write from home because it can get pretty lonely. And thank God I did that for a year because when I left to do the profile, I knew how to build structure into my day. And I knew that like working for yourself didn't just mean like sitting on the couch. <laughs> 
right, right, sitting on the couch and waiting for the phone to ring or an email to come in. It's like you have to be proactive. You have to structure. You have to hold yourself accountable, which is super interesting because you we don't, and like in the moment you don't really think about it, but then you when you do take a pause, like holy holy smokes, like looking back on yeah, there was some some hardship. You know, graduating college. You know, again r- being proactive, reaching out to your former intern, uh, the internship coordinator at CNN to you know can I help. Um, and then, yeah, and then having that sort of experience of what it, what it means to really, again, run your own business and, again, build your own identity, uh, which, is, which is super interesting. You know, you mentioned Brandon Stanton, the Humans of New York. And, you know, my podcast is really predicated on uh, this concept of doing good while doing well. I imagine a lot of the, the people that you've met with or speak with on a daily basis to include in, in the profile, whether it's on the Sunday edition or in the dossier, make it a point to, yes, I'm doing well professionally, but I also need to do, you know, give back or do good. Like Danny Meyer, his whole, you know, sticking with Danny Meyer for a second, his whole dining philosophy is not on the customer. It's really on the the people that he employs. Because if you take care of your employees, then the dining experience is going to take care of itself, which I find remarkable. And, you know, you you mentioned college graduates. Uh, As I mentioned also before our conversation, I had Craig Dubitsky, who is the uh, founder of Hello Products, serial entrepreneur. And one of the concepts or quotes that he really uh, conveys or articulates to the business schools that he goes to across the country is this whole concept of there's no such thing as FOMO. There's only font, fear of not trying. So based on you know the entrepreneurs and the business people that you're talking to on a daily basis, and we're talking about resilience and betting on yourself, is fear, like, what is the cost of not trying? Like, again, you took a bet on yourself, Polina. Like, what is that? What is that cost? <laughs> I mean, the cost is ultimately just a life of regrets. And, and if that sounds horrible to you, then you should do what you want now. Um, the way that I thought about it personally was if I, I had been at Fortune for five years, right? So I was like, if I stay here for another five years, knowing, you know, what I know now, uh, will I have learned more than or let or like, you know, the same as if I left Fortune and worked on the profile full time, will I have learned more there with that experience? Even if the profile like failed miserably, which experience would I have learned more from? And the answer was the profile because I already kind of, I had worked at traditional media organizations before. I kind of know how it works. I know what my potential for growth was. And then I knew that the potential for growth with the profile was uncapped. Like it was unlimited. It was only up to me to see like what I could do, who I could interview, how I could grow it. And I like, I don't know, part of me just, I enjoy that challenge and I enjoy kind of the the unknown and figuring it out because otherwise I get bored. And the, what you meant, like the fear of not trying, I often think back to um, Jim Cook, who's the founder of Samuel Adams Beer, he asked himself when he was thinking about quitting his 250K salary uh, job at uh, Boston Consulting Group and starting a brewer, he was like, okay, so is the decision that I'm about to make scary or is it dangerous? Because the scary part of any decision is like, I have to tell my boss, somebody, my college professor will be disappointed, blah, 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 blah. And then you realize like all that stuff is scary, but it's also temporary. That, that'll that last for like a day. But make no mistake, there is not a single person in the world who is sitting at home at night being like, man, I'm so disappointed in Paulina. Like, I really wish that she just stayed at Fortune. Like, there's not a single person who does that. So once you realize that like 
the pain and like the the fear is only temporary, then you can go do whatever you want and and you know make a calculated risk, but go do whatever you want. The dangerous part of a decision is if you wait and you don't do what you want and then you're 85 years old and you're like, damn, I wonder what could have happened if. It's like we get like one life, right? <laughs> and so I I don't know. I, I any any decision that is reversible like I quit to start my business and then it fails miserably, you can always go find another job. Like, you know, it's not that detrimental. It's not that crazy. So I think we like to think, oh, it's such a big risk. It's so, but it's not. At the end of the day, like if you are healthy, you can always go find another job. So to me, it was like understanding this is something I'm really passionate about. I know myself and I know that if I don't do it, I'll keep thinking about it and it'll bother me. Right. So you did it. You, you, t- you took the plunge. Like, again, you, you had you had three years before, right, before you went full time. So you, ha- you already had your MVP before you said, you know what, there's something here. There's a there there. So let me pursue this full time, which I think is pretty interesting. Uh, and yeah, and to your point, you know, I think we're, we're our own worst critic, right? We're always like ruminating like, oh, what if I do this? And what is so-and-so going to think? But then you, uh, what, what I've come to realize, and again, opinion of one, is that most people are in their own lane. They're, they're focused, whether it's themselves and if they have a family or, or people that depend on them, they're thinking about them. They're not thinking about, you know, someone who's an acquaintance or, or, or a friend or a colleague. You know, again, they're, they're focused on themselves and their own, you know, survival or existence in, in this world. So I think it's, it's super interesting and that's great advice. I think, you know, in terms of wrapping up our conversation, Polina, I would love to get your, like, what's, what's been the most motivating or uh, yeah, motivating or compelling piece of feedback that you've gotten since, again, founding the profile and building the profile to where it is today? Oh, that's a great question. I think the the recurring feedback that I often get is very much like it's it's usually it's usually college aged students or people that are like, oh, interesting. You know, I never kind of considered that I could do I could start something now that could pay off in the future. And my one piece of advice often when I get messages like that is. Um, first of all, I'm extremely humbled because I don't ever consider myself a person who seeks out risk. I'm never like, oh, this is risky. Let me go do it. <laughs> Usually I just try to mitigate it as much as possible. But it's there's pivotal moments in your life where you're like, oh, I could really go right here. I really want to go right. But everybody else is telling me to go straight. What do I do? If you go right and if you if you've thought about it and you you really make a decision that you feel prepared to make then that will really, really pay off for you. And um, the biggest piece of advice I often give college students, but also just anybody, is that do something that you only do for yourself because that goes back to you'll tie your identity to you, but not around something external, but also like, you know, in business school, how it's always like, oh, what's your business plan? Let's find a path to profitability. Like, let's go through a blueprint of how you're exactly you're going to structure it. Don't do something if you're only going to do it with the purpose of it making money. I genuinely believe the best things in the world come from just either a passion or a pain point that you're solving. Uh, Just like how I started the profile, never in my life did I ever think I would make a single penny off of it. I just did it because I liked profiles and I liked people and I I like this idea of like people focused learning. Brandon Stanton never started 
humans of New York thinking it was going to become this like global sensation that would he would write books on all this stuff. He started it because he got fired from his job and he just like wanted to do something that made him happy. Uh, Sarah Blakely, who started Spanx, she started Spanx out of a personal pain point where she was trying to go to a party and she was wearing white pants and her panty line was showing. So she like cut the the feet off of some pantyhose. Like all of those things, I don't think would have started in the same way or at least wouldn't have the same impact if they were started with the purpose of I need to make this a business. It's going to make money. Here's my business plan. It started with like, there's a grain of something I find interesting. Let me go all in and see what it could be. That's uh, that, that's super interesting. It's like a personal insight or a personal pain point of like, hey, I, I love you know, people. I want to write about people. I want to show other folks like why these people are so remarkable and, and, and interesting and they should read them. And then with Sarah Blakely, you know, it's like I'm running out to a party what I'm wearing doesn't look great. Uh, let me cut off the, the feet to my pantyhose, you know, see if, see what that will do. And then like, wait a minute, you know, again, it's that grain of an idea, but I think, you know, that, that compounds, right. It's that, okay, let's see where this goes. And then it comes to, right. Isn't there like a point in the road where it's like, why shouldn't I pursue this or why not me at this pivotal moment? Because I'm onto something. Exactly. And I do think it helps if you're an outsider, like basically, a lot of the people that I include in the book are outsiders or were outsiders to an industry that they totally revolutionized. And I think there's a reason that Spanx worked. Sarah Blakely had no fashion background. She didn't go to business school. She didn't know any of this stuff, but it helps of being an outsider to like kind of see what's wrong with this or just do it a different way. Um, you know, uh, Brandon Stanton had never taken a photo course in his life. He was constantly getting criticized by like New York magazine saying like, oh, he doesn't, th th he's not doing it right. And like all this stuff, but it doesn't matter because the regular person doesn't look for perfection. They look for like humanity. And, and I think like, that's exactly what you're saying. It's just like being an outsider can help you, disrupt things in the best way because you just don't know what you're doing. So you're figuring it out your own way. Your own way. Cause again, there's no playbook. It's like, it's like the, uh, the, the, the professional chef, there's one who's gone to CIA who's done it by the book. And there's one who's like, I'm homeschooled. I figured it out myself, my grandmother, as I was, as I was, um, getting older, uh, we would teach me, you know, her recipes and then it evolved into a passion. And I'm like, you know what, I'm going to go full speed into this and I'm going to, figure out a way to be an apprentice or a sous chef at a, at a nice restaurant. And then again, ride, uh, ride the ranks or, or ride the rails, you know, to, to, the, to becoming a personal chef. So there's that dichotomy, you know, to what you're saying about that outsider versus that insider, uh, which is, you know, super interesting. Another book uh, that I recommend is, I think it's David Epstein, which range where he looks at like people, yeah, like, like Tiger Woods, who was given a golf club at two years old. And then someone like, I think it was Roger Federer, who didn't pick up a racket until he was in his, in his teens or, or 12 years old because his parents exposed him to all different types of sports, which helped shape his and refined his viewpoint on how to be a, a great tennis player. So I think it's, it's super interesting and, and just gives a, a lot of thought. Paulina, uh, I do appreciate your time. I know we're coming up here. Uh, for the folks who are interested in learning more about Hidden Genius, where can they go? Yeah, you can, you can find the book at hiddengeniusbook.com or the profile at readtheprofile.com at readtheprofile.com. And I will also include links uh, in the show notes. Uh, I, I'm happy to say uh, this show is also hosted on Substack, just like the profile. So for, for anyone who's interested in, again, in starting a blog or starting a, a podcast, 
totally recommend uh, checking out Substack. Awesome. Thank you so much, Eric. This was a great conversation. Yes, likewise.